Welcome to Good Sense, a political education podcast. Hi, I'm Vivek Sony. And I'm Rowan Fortune with the Good Sense podcast. We'll be addressing different political subjects such as ecology and economics from a broad Marxist perspective and based around reading. We don't assume prior knowledge, so please enjoy. first cluster of books on climate breakdown we're going to be discussing Andreas Malm's fossil capital it's an extremely dense work so we'll try to explore the key concepts as best we can but we'd recommend you give it a read as it is a very original contribution we're also going to look at Malm's more recent work which has the rather verbose title of corona climate chronic emergency war communism in the 21st century In this work, Malm outlines his views on how best to combat climate breakdown something that is only touched upon in fossil capital As such, we've decided to discuss both books together to try and present a more complete idea of Malm's thesis. It's worth stressing, though, that the majority of our time will be spent discussing the extremely historically dense fossil capital. In this book, Malm attempts a Marxist understanding of climate change to show how anthropogenic climate change has its roots outside the realm of temperature and precipitation, turtles and polar bears, inside a sphere of human praxis that could be summed up in one word as labour. To do this, he moves from a historical account of the transition to steam power and climate capital to a theoretical understanding of climate capital itself. At heart, this is a book that explores what drives the development of productive forces. This is a term we've used before in this podcast, which in Marxist theory refers to the development of the combination of the means of labour, including land, resources, tools and machinery. What were the forces driving the shift to coal power and from burning coal power to steam power? This is one of the key questions Malm sets out to answer. E.A. Wrigley coined the term organic economy for a system in which all forms of material production are based on the land, be it raw materials, thermal energy or motive force. Here all forms of energy are drawn from photosynthesis which is dependent on and restricted by land availability. So more land means more photosynthetic capability which means more raw materials and energy and therefore increased production. This dependency on land imposes a tight bottleneck on industrial production because of the obvious limit on the amount of available land. It was fossil fuels that shattered this bottleneck. In his book, Energy and the English Industrial Revolution, Wrigley combines strands of thought that relate to land, population growth and labour, linking theories of David Ricardo, Thomas Malthus and Adam Smith respectively. And it's this Ricardo-Malthusian paradigm that Malm sets out to refute and which is worth briefly discussing here. The political economist David Ricardo posited that growth has to lay claim to more fertile land. Whilst the economy is young and the land sparsely populated, there is no problem. But at some point, more inferior land will have to be called into cultivation. More products must be produced from inferior land, requiring greater labour inputs, meaning that profit falls whilst accumulation lags. I'll note here that this is pleasingly analogous to Marx's law of capital accumulation and the tendency for the rate of profit to fall, but it's far too much of a tangent to go into just now. Anyway, in this system, self-sustaining growth is not possible. The inorganic economy provided a break in this stagnation through coal, which provided access to the products of past photosynthetic processes. Now temporal expansion via digging into the earth gains primacy over spatial expansion. 
We've discussed Malthus before on this podcast. His central idea was that population growth followed a geometric distribution, whilst increase in food supply follows an arithmetic distribution. In layman's terms, this means that whilst food supply grows in a constant linear fashion, the rate of population growth increases in a manner proportional to its, proportional to its size. So the larger the population becomes, the faster it grows. Richard Wilkinson has constructed a model of development centred around Malthusian population theory and the British Industrial Revolution. His basic idea is that technological development is driven by population growth because people only innovate in times of want. As the population grows, scarcity increases because the land can only support so many people at the same living standard. At this point, society has no choice but to innovate its way out of scarcity. On the eve of the Industrial Revolution, resources were stretched due to overpopulation. Coal resolved this crisis and provided the literal fuel for a massive innovation. And finally, we have Kenneth Pomerantz's The Great Divergence, China, Europe and the making of the modern world economy, which asserts that England and the Yangtze Delta followed the same trajectories up to the 19th century in terms of population density, specialisation, Smithian division of labour and economic growth. Pomerantz asserts that the great divergence between the two societies had two levers, colonies and coal, of which only England had access to both. It's not down to any unique set of social relations and technologies that set the trajectories of this divergence, but simply down to geographical luck. Where England had fossil fuels buried literally under people's feet, coal from the Chinese inland had to be transported prohibitively long distances to the coast, and so England flourished while China regressed due to the constraints of a growing population and limited land availability. Malm calls the framework for understanding the shift to fossil fuels that I've just described the Ricardian-Malthusian paradigm, nominatively highlighting the primary importance of Ricardo and Malthus in this theory. The rise of steam power fits nicely into this framework. While burned for heat, coal remains of limited value because it's still subject to the Ricardian-Malthusian limits just discussed. What was needed was a source of power that shattered the bottleneck, that allowed production to outpace population growth. Steam provided this critical step out of the bounds of the organic economy and into continuous growth. To fit steam into his model, Wrigley extends Ricardian scarcity from being exclusively soil-based to scarcity of any form, including access to water required for steam power. We've described this framework at some length there because it's the central theory that Mound critiques in Fossil Capital, as well as, as the name Ricardian-Malthusian paradigm suggests, the consensus version of historical development of the productive forces. I've just talked for a long time, so do you want to uh, maybe elaborate on Malm's refutation of the Ricardian-Malthusian paradigm? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, his elaboration is intimately tied with, I would say, the real strength of this book, which is its historical depth. And that's something that is slightly outside of our scope here, because there's just a lot of detail that really you could just get lost in if you elaborated. And for that, we would both, I'm sure, recommend reading the book. It's fantastic for this stuff. It gives accounts of both individuals and their engagements with this history, as well as mass social movements and their importance to this. But really, within that huge record that Malm details at length using both qualitative and quantitative data, there's just no evidence for the Malthusian-Ricardian paradigm or the Ricardian-Malthusian paradigm. You would expect, for example, if this was true, for the output of coal to be somewhat linked to increases in population. 
but as Mao shows between 1800 and 1870, contrary to what Malthus's theory would certainly suggest, the population increased by slightly less than 150%, to use Mao's words, uh, while coal output jumped 720%. So there's just no correspondence whatsoever. You can similarly see that in in the record between 1820 and 2010, where the emissions and increase in population are massively out of kilter. So from this, really, Malm is identifying what is a central myth of this paradigm, which is that it explains the dynamics of the fossil economy as being implied and is inherent um, to uh, is that it implies that the fossil uh, the fossil economy exists inherently within society and that it emerges almost teleologically that it's assumed by our inherent capacity to develop past limits past human natural limits and that it's in that sense completely mechanistic and what Malm contends is that shifts between particular technological forms, particular ways of organising the economy can't be explained mechanistically but are explained by what is happening within social societies and social formations themselves, within contentions, within new dynamics of power and attempts to subvert and eliminate that those dynamics of power to overcome them. And he tells a completely different story, one that he argues, I would say convincingly, much more closely aligns with the historic record as it actually occurred, rather than um, having to come up with increasingly unlikely explanations for why these population numbers don't actually match up uh, with with technological development at any particular point. It's an explicitly Marxist account in that sense, because it is entirely conjunctural. Uh, the conclusions are based on the active historical forces on the ground rather than um, this deterministic idea that comes with the Ricardian-Malthusian paradigm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for example, in the shift from the hand loom to uh, steam, Malm argues that it would have to be accounted for by a scarcity of of hand loom weavers, by some kind of absence of this um, uh, base to of of workers to be employed, and in fact, there was an overabundance, and you know. This is, this is replicated over and over again in every technological transition. The absence of scarcity, which is at the heart of the Ricardian uh, 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 Malthusian thesis, really doesn't appear very often um, and, and never appears to a sufficient degree that it could be just bluntly said to be explanative of, of what's going on. Um, and, and so really capitalism begins with a set of ideas about how society should look based on the productive capacities that they can create. And it emerges 
as it attempts to expand on those ideas, as it attempts to enforce those ideas about what work should look like, what what how people should be within society. Essentially, it's it's not a it's not a production first model. That's the heart of this book, really, is about what is driving the development of the productive forces, what's driving these technological changes. Uh, And steam is critical in this sense, because that's where things really took off, so to speak, as I um, as I mentioned in the introduction, it's where suddenly industrial production even was not beholden to um, organic limits such as land or access to natural resources like water um, and from here you you see this um, burst of productive activity and there's several consequences of this of of Malm's frame Malm's um, refutation of the Ricardian Malthusian paradigm um, so it there's history is no longer deterministic it, it, it we are no longer just observers to history um workers have a sense of agency they are capable of driving the class struggle and in terms of climate which is the underlying question that malm is posing is that social relations are what drove fossil fuel expansion um, it was to shift the balance of forces in favor of capital that technological development did occur uh, and the examples uh, the, like you mentioned this, this is extremely historical uh, historically dense text Malm talks about um, the various gains that the workers movement that uh, the working class actually achieved um, including the factory act of 1833 um, which placed restrictions on child labour, and the reason that part of the reason that the working class was able to achieve these gains is because at this point, when there was no, um, when capital was specifically had to be located geographically um, in certain areas, whether it was because you needed to be have access to uh, natural resources, whether it was access to water, meant that you your your pool of workers was it was ultimately quite small. It was workers from available towns now once uh, steam comes along and suddenly capital becomes a lot more mobile and you expand the size of um, what Marx would call the reserve army of labor and suddenly the the, the balance of forces shifts decisively in favor of capital and that's because you, you start acting up as a worker you start mobilizing as a group of workers and it's much easier to fire workers because you have this access to a huge swathe of unemployed workers which before for whether it was geographical limits or other reasons you just you simply could not do now that also ties into de-skilling uh whereas um you you mentioned hand weavers um these were artisanal skills which only a certain number of workers actually had and so this gives workers a lot more power to actually influence things in their favour. However, as you start de-skilling, as suddenly all you require is factory workers who are expendable in the sense that if you fire them, you can get other people in to do exactly the same thing because you no longer need individual hand weavers who are doing it by hand, which requires skills that have taken a long time to build up. Suddenly people are becoming a lot more expendable and you're able to manage the workplace much better Uh, and this is one of the central theses of the book yeah and i think later books by malm certainly indicate this say that this is a 
autonomous cons conception of how these social forces interact. So steam is adopted precisely because it gives this advantage to the bourgeoisie, to, to the capitalist class over workers, and for no other reason. That, that, is, that is the driving force. It might eventually result in greater productive capacity, and, and in fact, obviously did. But, but at the point of assuming this technology, that was not apparently the case, and there yeah, were that was a, that was a symptom. The underlying cause was mm. class struggle. Absolutely, and with uh, you know, you mentioned the Factory Act of eighteen thirty three, and Malm does a really good job of putting all of this in its multivalent context. The the, the different factors influencing these moments from even outrage at conditions as, as a very minor factor to the way that the culture of workers in, in rejecting the consensus view of, of, a, of a transition to a more brutal form of work and the ability of the working class of the period to depict the transition to new and brutal forms of, of workplace organisation as immoral, as wrong, uh, in a consistent and, and concerted way, were, were, were hugely determinant here. And it's in the interplay of these different social forces, but also the different emerging cultural forces within these social forces that we, that we find the real his, history of capitalism not in this mechanistic there's this limit there's this arithmetical limit about population that has to be overcome in some way and then technology answers that and then we hit the next limit and then technology answers that which removes all agency from from the historical account and i mean it's interesting because you mentioned it's that it's a marxist conception but mal I would say quite rightly even takes Marx to task at one point in the book for, for at least initially not really having this conception and actually subscribing in some senses to that more mechanistic view of how productive forces work. And there's a version of what you could call productive forces determinism within certain Marxian texts where he himself sees capitalism as emerging out of technological innovations unlocking new productive capacities at least primarily and he doesn't sustain that view it, it Malm shows that textually as well that Marx actually does especially in this working capital start to really see and appreciate the role workers have in fighting back against their conditions and also how that fight back in itself shapes the capitalist response to the the their own needs to to um to disciplining workers in accordance to their needs and to also providing what is necessary to workers to keep them in any way happy or and able to replicate their lives um which is important to the capitalist class for obvious reasons um yeah there's some brilliant passages in the book about um how it's in the interests of capital to flatten out these to actually uh, 
to construct a deterministic future where it's with that predictability that in produ- production can increase, that you um, that capital can ultimately flourish. Um, but that's not how um, history has actually proceeded. And it's nicely analogous to the idea that um, we're almost sold this idea that capitalism is eternal. It's always been the case. Um, but it's um, very much refuted when uh, you look at how workers' struggles have driven this uh, development of technology. Absolutely. The the, the movements that, that mount um, steam demonology and steam fetishism, I think, are, are illustrative here. If you look at the thrust of steam fetishism, which is a form of technological fetishism, um, and it's really quite analogous now to sort of techno-optimism or techno-determinism that you see today. This kind of Silicon Valley, we'll invent AI, we'll invent asteroid mining, we'll invent something that will overcome whatever limits we've hit. And this is becoming wildly popular today as capitalism is hitting all kinds of limits. It has arisen as a result of relation to fluid the social relations uh, metabolic as they rift in relation to the rest of nature. Most pressingly for us right now, the, the, board, the uh, want to no longer treat humankind as a species but being determined really by biological evolution. Nor can one write of divisions between human beings and immaterial to the broader picture. For such divisions may have been an integral part the agency of, of people against that and stresses that people can change and reshape society. And I would argue that, well, that isn't entirely absent today. That is what is most absent in terms of coming up with any kind of solution to fossil capital as it's as it's emerging. We'll probably get a little bit more into that as we look at some of Malm's own ideas about solutions. Just yeah. on that note, there's a, a really good Malm quote from the book which really highlights uh, what, you're, what you've just been elaborating. Uh, Malm just states that realising that climate change is anthropogenic is to appreciate that it is sociogenic. It has arisen as a result of temporally fluid social relations as they materialise through the rest of nature. And once this ontological insight, implicit into climate change science, is truly taken on board, one can no longer treat humankind as a species being determined by its biological evolution. Nor can one write off divisions between human beings as immaterial to the broader picture, for such divisions may have been an integral part of fossil fuel combustion in the first place. Ultimately, one of the consequences of this um, techno-fetishism that you were talking about is these appeals to a kinder capitalism, or that in some way something outside of the social forces on the ground, something external will deliver us from the problems around the climate. But there's no evidence in history to suggest that that would be the case. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I would say, indicative of a kind of what you might call bourgeois moralism, trying not to sound too stereotypically Marxist. (laughs) But but yeah, and and then of course this this is very apparent in in, um, Malthusianism, where you can even see that culpability is entirely flipped. So that the people who are driving those forces that create the metabolic rift, that create these forms of relationship to nature that are unsustainable in the long term, that worsen and worsen 
as they go on in terms of the relationship between people and the resources around them are exactly the people who then turn around and on a completely empirically false basis point to the to the mass of, of, of human life and say this is your fault there are too many of you etc etc it's it's a uh, it's actually not just simply wrong but but the complete opposite of of the um, moral case that insofar as Mao makes one which I think it, it that's a complicated um, separate question but it is a, a, you know in terms of culpability it's it's the opposite. Yeah, and it's something we've hit on in pretty much every one of these podcasts on climate change because uh, it's it's such a dominant strand of thought within um, climate activism. Yeah, it's impossible to avoid because it, it's... I, I, I'm sure that when we get more into the economics, we're going to talk a bit about how the idea of... Uh, and, and we have mentioned it previously, how the idea of underproductionism has an inherently intuitive appeal, and I won't go into that now. In a very similar way, there's something that's just intuitive about Malthusian ideas in the context of capitalism, because it is really the, the one of the foundational ideologies of capitalism itself. It's written into how the system explains itself and how it explains its emergence into being, that there are these inherent disequilibriums within population that need to be corrected every now and again and that productive forces of how we've done that you know these wondrous technologies are how we've overcome that in each instance and so people including people on the left naturally gravitate to these ideas when they want an, uh, an explanation that just makes sense to the to how they perceive the world around them without the kinds of social forces that you saw emerge around steam demonology for example which Malm charts through uh, poetry from the chartist movement to pamphlet culture uh, to traditions of oration and so on and so forth we really lack something like that that can create a, a new locus of intuition for the mass of people that is away from what you know you might call capitalist realism in a sense. Uh, and we were talking before this podcast started that part of that is uh, because of the atomization of workers and the fact that workers their experience is no longer they're, they're so diverse that there is no there's nothing that there's not there's no central binding um locus of struggle which there might once have been absolutely it, it's i mean we were talking in in the previous podcasts uh, a little about the way in which green new deals designed and engineered in the imperial core countries so to speak tend to even if they try not to discount the difficulties and the problems related to the global south and in fact although i wouldn't want to overstress the critique even with malm who is fully aware of these problems i think his engagement with the issue of extractivism uh in this book and in others is is quite weak consistently and i mean i don't think that that's any fault of his he 
shows a consistent concern for uh, the interests of the global south, and um, and he has some particularly brilliant uh, examinations of why the Chinese working class, for example, are not responsible for the pollution uh, output in China. That that's you know on multiple levels uh, an absurd case to make, but nonetheless, he, you know, I I think he's got sort of one line that looks at extractivism and it posits that it's not even a, a you know a particularly serious problem that will probably be overcome through technological means no less um and this is a this is a consistent um theme amongst green new dealers as well that the these these issues that really only affect people from outside of um countries like the one we're currently in the united kingdom um are not a serious impediment to to our plans uh, for for a sustainable world economy for a kind of climate leviathan to use the language of the previous book it's it's a it's a consistent problem when you're trying to amalgamate the experiences and needs of so many different localities and identities and experiences and I think it's one that we'll certainly revisit in in a more concentrated form in the future. But there are no real easy answers. There's no sort of lazy opt-out explanation in the the inane chit-chat between uh, identity politics and class reductionism doesn't really even scratch the surface of these, these kinds of problems, which are uh, about the geographical diffuse nature of the problems that emerge through capitalism. Um, They're about these various different culpabilities, which are by no means simplistic um, and and are only getting more complex as time goes on. And it's, it's a, it's a very pressing issue. And it's, it's, it's a really good thing that Malm takes this seriously as so few theorists really do. I think in part because of the complexity of the problem. I think we're probably getting to a point now where we should start talking about what Malm's, um, not necessarily solutions, but how he sees the future looking at, or what what approaches we should take towards halting or climate breakdown. Now, one of the issues is we we feel like we we haven't talked for that long on fossil capital and part of the reason is because it's so historically dense the overall the underlying framework for it is actually quite simple to explain but what malm does really well is historically backs it up now malm falls into one or two issues when he's looking at the future which is something that he's not the only one that's guilty of it's um and part of the reason as you just articulated is it's there there is no easy solution and this is where we're not just going to look at fossil capital because in uh fossil capital malm only touches very briefly on how on solutions to climate change going forward i imagine we're probably likely to use the um language of climate leviathan going forward because it's such a useful framework to look at different social formations for climate change and malm's solutions fit into this framework quite nicely. So in Vossel Capital, he only touches on the future briefly, um, and it's in stark contrast to the very historically dense narrative uh, that comes before it. But it's it, it very much falls into the climate leviathan formation. This, it's the sort of social democracy you get with the Green New Deal, 
but this changes in his book on coronavirus and um, war communism. It has a really long name. Um, but in this, it's it, it would be much closer to Climate Mao. So just a reminder that the four formations we have, a Climate Leviathan, are state capitalist, Climate Mao is state anti-capitalist, and then you have Climate Behemoth, which is state anti-capitalist, or and then finally Climate X, which is anti-state anti-capitalist. Um, do you want to talk a bit on the fossil capital solution? And I'll uh, briefly elaborate on the um, the more war communism solution Malm gives in his newer book. Definitely, yeah. I, there's very little to say, and there's enough ambiguity that you could argue that that he's not completely contradicting what he says later. Although I think that that that's probably more charitable than uh, than, than we should be. He essentially puts it to an issue of pragmatics, which is something you will hear a lot if you've had any experience in a social democratic party. It's it's that radicals, whilst great and having fantastic critiques, need to see the social forces as they exist today and tone down what they want to approximate those social forces and to recognise where the locuses of power are, which is with the capitalist state, and to take that seriously. So on the flip side, he also argues that moderates and and so on and so forth need to see that radical critiques are fundamentally necessary to some of the radical problems that we face. This is very much at the level of platitudes and I don't really think it goes far beyond that in fossil capital it is it is about it's all about making sure that that you know you're you're considerate of of you know what your actual position of power is and acting accordingly he talks of stock and flow so um, where fossil fuels are a form of stock in the sense that they can be extracted, stored, and transported with ease, renewable renewable energies are tend to be more in the form of flow. So going back to what we were talking about earlier, before the um, advent of steam power, you were um, geographically constrained. So the idea is these energy sources must be used where they are. And Malm advocates this localism, which he argues would erode global supply chains. The way he phrases it is capital would have to move to society's time rather than vice versa. And the means of production would need to be tethered to communities, uh, rather again, rather than communities being centred around the means of production. Um, now, this complete inversion of the logic of global capital, which is constantly seeking to expand globally for profit for someone whose whole book is focused on what drives these changes in the balance of forces there is no discussion of what would drive this radical shift in the balance of forces like and and this is the thing we keep coming back to time and again is what is the mechanism driving this The, the biggest disconnect here is between the radicalism um that, that you would need to achieve those goals and the you know pragmatic milk toast ideas about how he thinks radicals should proceed in in real politics so he clearly does recognize that there are a limit to there is a severe limit indeed to what radicals can do in that he is recommending 
that we don't push too far, that we don't be too utopian in this book. But at the same time, his ideas are incredibly utopian if they were taken to their conclusion. And really, I think this this is a broader disconnect between Malm's politics and his autonomous conception of how class works. His politics is broadly focused exactly like the Green New Deal people on how state power can be exercised to the advantage of the you know the collective good. It's it's very Mao, uh, you know, in the sense of of, of climate Mao, in the sense of Maoism. Um, <laughs> it, it complicates things that they call it climate Mao, um, although I do see why the the. Yeah, it, it, it's a real, it's a real uh, point of, of contention within the work. And I would argue that actually the, the radicalism of his thought gets even deeper if you start applying what I would say is a, a more sensible Marxian economics to it, because he has stuff about financialization here. He has yeah, stuff about the driving economics, forces I think of capital. Be really good to come back and but start if you believe, as we do, that there is a profitability crisis at the heart of contemporary capitalism, uh, and that that's severely constraining how capitalists will invest, then the pushback to this kind of localism and the ability for even a temporary Keynesian social democratic force to be able to sensibly construct a new society on this basis uh, is is thrown into serious question. And really just just restraining financial assets and and all of that, although in and of itself there's no actual plan to accomplish that. But just doing that would be would be powerfully insufficient if we're correct. And that that takes us a little outside of where we are right now but i think that that's an argument we'll we'll return to about a lot of these kinds of schemes that really are predicated on essentially some kind of new dealism yeah once we've looked at economics i think it would be really good to come back and uh, start understanding the economics of climate change and the various social formations and how how that actually will pan out because i think as we touched on last time climate leviathan is great at elucidating the political form so the the political uh consequences of each social formation but it doesn't heavily touch on the economics one of the other issues with um espousing this localism because he doesn't hone into it it sort of flattens out this localism as if it would be the same across the globe and this is one of the issues with uh, Malm's thesis, both in fossil capital, but also in the um, Corona climate uh, book. Um, and that's it, it, this. Um, it, it doesn't account for not only the heterogeneous landscape across the globe, but also about what's actually um, what the, the, the climate movements occurring in the global south. And for example, in fossil capital, um, Malm talks about this uh, this localization and this use of renewable energies, and it's very uh, akin to some of the um, Green New Deal solutions we hear of. But it doesn't account for rare earth minerals, and we've touched on this before. How the race for rare earth minerals is going to be driven by capital? It's it's not a case that they're just going to. Um, 
we, I mean, we saw this with uh, the Bolivian coup of 2019, which was motivated by such goals. Um, and um, I think uh, Elon Musk on Twitter actually responded to criticism with, uh, we will coup whoever we want to deal with it, which you, you certainly can't ignore what capital's response is going to be. It's It's not a case that we have our solution of more localism and that gradualism that that Malm espouses uh, just uh, just seems as you as you said it seems utopian but in um the corona var- corona ca- climate change and war communism i'm sorry i keep getting the name wrong because it's such a long name um he pivots to a more climate mal solution suddenly the focus is on what he calls war communism and so we start with a long critique of um, social democracy, including probably the best line in the book where he calls Edward Bernstein the Stephen Pinker of socialism. But the focus um, for Malm is that the problem with Bernstein's uh, rejection of crisis theory, Edward Bernstein uh, was a social democrat, was that it allowed social democrats to switch from revolutionary struggle to gradualist reformism and um this is something that's still uh, very much perceptible today um and part of that is because of the balance of forces in um many of the, for example in britain there, there is a revolutionary landscape is just not uh, there is no workers movement in this country um but mal's point is that social democracy requires timescales that our crisis will not permit now this is very much a shift from that more um passive tone we see at the end of fossil capital where he's talking about this shift towards localism and uh, this is clearly driven by coronavirus uh Malm spends uh, quite a significant portion of the book talking about zoonotic spillover and how that's a consequence of climate change and specifically uh, a consequence of capitalism because of humans uh, requiring more and more uh, resources niche for shifting into ecologically pristine environments. So his solution is um, inspired by Lenin's response to uh, the crisis of the First World War. So Malm suggests we must take similarly drastic measures as, as he says, step them up a notch and deploy them against the drives of catastrophe. So this includes some uh, rather strange solutions of rewilding, banning imported meat from countries bordering the tropics, and a gradually unrolled ban on wild animal meat, with an end goal of global veganism as a collective rather than as individual choice. We move from a state-driven solution to collective consumer choice. He talks about the crisis of symptoms must become the crisis of causes. And there's a lot of, again, it's a frustrating thing about Corona Climate Chronic Emergency, which I agree is is not a brilliant title. At least Um, you got the name right. I I think Verso demanded that uh, a whole bunch of books come out that begin with the name Corona. And so (laughs) that's that's how we ended up here. That's my impression. yeah, but it, it, it's totally different to in tone and and such to fossil capital uh, as a book. It's 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 a lot lighter. There's some really good and interesting examinations of zoonotic spillovers and how that works and 
the role particular species play in that, which are more like the detailed analyses he gives in Fossil Capital, although also a little tangential at points. By no means rooted in social forces, though, the way no. you get in Fossil Capital. It's more, it's more a fairly orthodox ecological account, although, of course, he does account for um, capitalism is responsible, largely. Yeah, yeah. There's, 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 there's some of that. Although, as you say, like even in so far as he does attribute it to systemic issues, he isn't that interested in this book and at the forces pushing those systemic issues. There's some kind, there's some throwaway references to the kinds of things that you would expect in fossil capital, but that's about as far as it goes. And and I, I you know, there, there might be all kinds of reasons, uh, including even publication reasons for that being the case. But, you know, in terms of just time length and, and, you know, where his focus is. But, yeah, when it comes to the solutions, they there's this, as you point out, there's this list of demands that feel... They, they feel very odd. They feel like they've come from somewhere and that they have a history attached to them, but we don't get that. We don't really get the arguments that have fed into this. You could immediately see all kinds of problems about how different cultures would interact with these demands, like universal veganism and so on, like the kinds of things that you would expect the writer of fossil capital to be very sensitive to um, in terms of his idea of multivalent causes and and the the different. But it's that it's that global, it's that flattening, isn't it? Mm. That we seem to see uh, again when he's sort of looking forward. Yeah, yeah, and and that's it. That's the consistent feature. That I mean, the, the the credit I will always give people on this question is that it is it is just an incredibly difficult problem, um, and it's unsatisfying to write a book and say that and say that you know this is beyond the scope of existing social forces that in a way to come up with a solution we have to come up with new social forces it's it's perhaps the correct answer and i'd say that climate leviathan certainly comes closest to just bluntly stating that um but in that sense you know even we've said that that climate x however elegant is an incredibly frustrating concept because it gives you so little to work with in the present. It doesn't really set you up with any immediate goals or steps that you can take beyond nursing and cultivating the social movements that are closest and most proximate to you. Um, and it's it's really, I think, responding to this feeling of emergency, which is fundamental to to uh, corona climate and chronic emergency it's in the title after all um <laughs> and and you know when you're saying emergency then saying cultivate social forces just doesn't sound like a, an adequate response the yeah it, 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 you know the movements that that he could have raised however i think it, it is a potential direction that, that you could go with this. There was a quite good critical review by Max Agile, who I don't know very well, but is apparently writing a book on the Green New Deal. And he pointed to a huge range of social formations, including some that are in themselves Leninist in their tradition, 
that could have been name-checked at the very least, but even better, developed and teased out and, and, and shown uh, in, in the ways that they work and don't work, perhaps, in, in Malm's book. He mentions the movement towards socialism in Bolivia, uh, mass. He mentions Leninist movements in the Philippines and India. He mentions uh, worldwide peasant confederation, La Via Campesina. I'm probably butchering that. Uh, the indigenous Anchorage Declaration, uh, the Appalachian Green New Dealers, and so on and so forth. It's a, it's a really extensive list, and none of them are really contained here or at the end of fossil capital. And I, I think that's a shame. I think that it, there's a, there is a, a missed opportunity, I would agree with Agile in that sense, that there's, that there's a, a scope for looking at these social movements and these social formations within this broader abstract and, and more internationalist perspective and seeing what emerges from that rather than coming up with an abstract set of demands that you then impose on social movements, which is in fact exactly what Marx and Engels were critiquing when they critiqued utopianism uh, to, to sort of come up with a scheme and then impose it on social movements. It does feel somewhat that the um, Corona climate and war communism book is 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 a is a rush job. It it's um, it captures the urgency of the moment, but it seems very out of step with fossil capital in that sense. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it, it not just out of step in the sense that one is sort of monumental work of historical depth and the other is a, a more journalistic appraisal of where we are now with some loose ideas thrown in about what we can do about it, but also out of step in that the, the autonomism he was outlining in that and in his more philosophical, the progress of this storm, which we won't go into here because the ideas are just way outside of our our range um here i think it would it would set up loads of tangents but but really really pressing with this and in fact explicitly there in a way that he doesn't in fossil capital evoking the autonomists um and and partly identifying although not wholly identifying with their ideas it it this Corona Climate Chronic Emergency just doesn't feel like an autonomous text at all. It feels like a book more aligned with old vanguardist ideas about how you correct these problems. Uh, and while clearly Malm doesn't believe that the answer to the future exists in some small Leninist sect, you could imagine most of this latter half of this book being a manifesto put out by a small Leninist sect to some extent. Yeah, uh, if you wanted to be cruel, a wish list. Yes, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, which, to be fair, a lot of Green New Dealism is. I mean, you know, within the climate Leviathan stuff, within, um, you know, I, I have a lot of respect and time for Pepsi 4 and Klein, um, I think they both do some really interesting work. I don't agree with their overall framework, but I, I certainly think it's worth seriously engaging with their text. But a lot of the ideas in those two texts that we tackled in the first episode uh, could be called a wish list with, with equal fairness. Yeah, that's true. And once again, we come back to 
the simple fact that there are no easy solutions for this and even talking about cultivating grassroots movements and building these social forces it seems very temporarily at odds with the speed of climate breakdown particularly uh, when that's been brought home somewhat with climate uh, with um, the coronavirus we've sort of ended <laughs> negative on uh, some of these uh, texts that we've read but they're all worth engaging with certainly fossil capital is an absolutely brilliant historic account of the development of the productive forces it really is rather unique in that context i've i've certainly not read um anything like it it's reminiscent of ep thompson's the the making of the english working class in that sense and it's it comes back to the point that there are really no easy solutions when it comes to climate change and we've critiqued enough here but i I mean i I don't think you or i could um come up with any solutions that are any more convincing it's it's much easier to see the problems but that's not a particularly inspiring way to go forward absolutely it's it's definitely easy to sort of sort of slight from armchairs i guess is is the way you could put it um than than it is to actually sit down and, and construct ideas about how we move forward and i would reiterate that it's not just that the book has a lot of historical depth it's 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 enjoyable to read uh there there are you know, potted biographies there are there are lots and lots of texture detailing about how people's lives operated within these confines, about how agency works on the ground. It's in various moments a quite inspiring book. And when Malm takes down the... Uh, Car- and Malthusian yeah, paradigm. He likes long-winded phrases. He does like long-winded phrases. But when he takes that down, when he, when he offers a refutation, um, he really will go in for the kill and that he will build up the argument as, as, as robustly as possible. I think the phrase is steel man it um, uh, before he sort of tears it apart. So he really will, he's, he's a good argumentative thinker and, and you really, and it's quite enjoyable to watch that at work uh, in, in some of these, um, in some of those chapters. Even this uh, book on um, that's focused on the coronavirus, it's still, it's interesting to see the development of his own theories because uh, as you said, he's just—he's such an interesting thinker. But we're going to leave it there with focusing on climate change, and we're going to uh, shift onto economics uh, from the next podcast episode. Thank you for listening to Good Sense. You can find us on Twitter at Pod Good Sense.